You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Liberty Family Church. For more information about our church, head to the website, libertyfamilychurch.net.au. Introduce myself again for those who don't know me. My name's Peter Rogers and I serve as part of the eldership team here at Liberty Family Church and I'm going to bring the Word of God to you this morning. This morning we're going to continue together on our journey in God's big story where Joel left off last week. You'll remember that uh, Israel is uh, down in Egypt and we'll remember that right through the Bible, right throughout God's big story, there are themes of creation, fall, redemption and then new creation or new beginnings. God giving people a chance to start again. And no matter what the new situation, no matter how desperate things seem to be, no matter how big the mess and the mistakes that we all make, no matter how big the hole that we dig for ourselves, God repeatedly reaches out his hand to us to dust us off and to set us on the right road again. But we also see another story repeatedly playing out over the course of human history. And that story also witnesses the same monumental mistakes and and failures of mankind. But on the contrary, it observes mankind trying to save itself, trying to redeem itself, trying to take matters into its own hands. And it's the story of mankind trying to bless itself, just like Jacob's life uh, displayed before he wrestled with God, as Laura shared a few weeks ago. And this morning I want to pose a question to each one of us, and the question is this. Who is mighty? Who is almighty and mighty to save? Is it the gods of self-sufficiency, the gods that we ordain for ourselves, or is God alone almighty to save? And this morning as we open up the Bible together, we're going to be reminded by God that only he is almighty and that we all have to answer to him in the end, and in the end only God can save us. Now this was the lesson for Pharaoh and the Israelites in Egypt around three and a half thousand years ago. But it's also the lesson that we need to learn and apply to our lives today just as much. Only God is almighty and mighty to save. So today's story takes us back around three and a half thousand years in time, in history. God had already plucked Abraham out of obscurity and promised to make a great nation of him through which all the nations of the earth would be blessed and that includes us in Australia. God had miraculously given Abraham a son in his old age and Isaac was born. Isaac grows up and has sons of his own, twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And God sovereignly chooses Jacob, changes his name to Israel and Jacob's sons or their descendants become the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel's favourite son 
or one of them, is Joseph, and he's betrayed by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. But God redeems the situation and creates something good from evil. God has great plans for Joseph. So Joseph, courtesy of his God-given ability to interpret dreams, rises up to become the ruler of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. And Joseph's wisdom and planning enables him to save Egypt and all of Israel's family from the coming years of famine. And Jacob and his sons and his descendants live peacefully and prosper under Pharaoh in the well-watered pastures of Goshen, which is in northern Egypt, up near the the Nile Delta. So that's where we left off last week. Uh, Israel in Egypt and prospering because of God's mercy in making something good out of something evil. But over time, all these Israelites grow into a large nation. They prosper so much under God's blessing that they grow into a people group of over one million men, women and children. And eventually, that pharaoh, that favourable pharaoh dies and his successors fear that these Israelites are so great in number that they pose a threat to national security. What if we're invaded and our slaves turn against us? Where will we be then? So to mitigate such an insurgency, Pharaoh orders that the Israelites now all become the slaves of Egypt. And if that's not enough, Pharaoh continues to worry and he takes things a little bit further. To further mitigate the risk, Pharaoh plans a cull of Israel. Pharaoh orders that the Israelite midwives kill all the newborn Hebrew boys. But when the Israelite midwives refuse to be part of Pharaoh's infanticide, all of Egypt, all Egyptians, are ordered to throw the newborn Hebrew baby boys into the Nile. But one Israelite mother from the tribe of Levi, a woman named Jochebed hides her son in a basket in the reeds of the Nile, only to be found and rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, who names the child Moses, which means to be drawn out of the water. And so Moses is raised as the grandson of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. How beautifully ironic that the very person who had decreed the destruction of the people of God would become the grandfather of their deliverer. The resources of the oppressing power would be used to raise and train the one who would break that power. How ironic that the one who sought to destroy Israel, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, would be the one to raise care for and protect the one whom God would choose and call to save Israel. So time passes, Pharaoh dies, but Israel remained captive, slaves in a foreign land. And the Israelites must have been thinking, whatever happened to God's plans 
to make us into a great nation and give us a land of our own. And their thoughts turn into cries and their cries into pleas and prayers which were recorded in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. And we'll read that now. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So God had not forgotten his plans to make Abraham into a great nation and bless the world, even though hundreds of years had passed. Israel still needed to be saved from slavery. But would Egypt give up its slaves without a fight? It's now that God calls Moses miraculously from a burning bush and sends him and his brother Aaron to Pharaoh to demand that Israel be released to go and worship God in the wilderness. But God's plans, God's plan was actually to take them much further than that, ultimately right into the land of Canaan, the land he had promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and their descendants. Because God always keeps his promises. And that's something that we can remind ourselves of this morning, that God will always keep his promises. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 to 10, after the cries of Israel are raised in prayer to God, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you, that's Moses and Aaron, to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So Moses and his brother Aaron trip off, go back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh. And this is the exchange that followed in Exodus 5, verse 1 and 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, this is, the, this is the crux of the matter, the crux of the question this morning. These words that Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Who is the Lord? that I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Now this is where it gets personal for Pharaoh, 
but it's actually where it gets personal for you and for me also. And at the heart of the matter is rebellion. At the heart of the matter is sin. And that's what sin is. It's rebellion against God. So how many of us have asked the same question that Pharaoh asked? Who is God that I should obey him? Seems like a reasonable question to ask. Who is God that I should obey him? Well, Pharaoh says, well, I don't know God or much about him, so I won't obey him. And maybe that's what some of us have said in the past also. At the heart of the matter is this question, who is our God and to whom will we answer? Will we make gods for ourselves and, and gods of ourselves? Will we serve ourselves and answer only unto ourselves? Or will we obey God and answer to him? In essence, it's that same very first question that Adam and Eve faced and had to answer in the Garden of Eden. Why can't I take charge of my own life and do my own thing? Surely I can take care of matters myself. The answer lies in the fact that we were created by God, for God, and that rebellion against God leads to death. So many people challenge and question that truth, that assertion. Will it really? Will it really lead to death? Will I die? Well, that's the lie that Satan fed Adam and Eve originally in the Garden of Eden. The lie that they would not die if they disobeyed God. And we all know how it turned out for Adam and Eve. They're not around today. They died. But surely that won't happen to me. Is that what you're thinking? Is that what Pharaoh was thinking? So most and Aaron tell Pharaoh that the Lord, the God of Israel, wants his people to worship him in the wilderness. And it seems like a reasonable request to Moses and the Israelites at the time. But Pharaoh gives them the brush off. Don't bother me. I've got other things to do. I've got another agenda. So Pharaoh basically says, who does your God think he is? Why should I listen to your God? I've got plenty of my own gods. I can take care of myself. And I'm certainly not going to give my slaves the opportunity to run away. I need them here to build my pyramids. Well, you know, we could paraphrase that and we could hear that sort of response from people today, couldn't we? You've probably heard people say, and you might have even said it or thought it yourself. Why should I pay attention to what you say about your God? I've got my own agenda and goals. I can take care of myself. I want to grow my business, build my career, build a house, find a partner, travel, retire. I need to stick to my guns if I'm going to achieve my goals for my life. So like Pharaoh, we set ourselves up in competition against God. We say to God, who are you that I should obey you? I don't know you. And... That's a dangerous thing to say to God. and Because in response, God says, if you won't obey me and you don't know me, then let me introduce myself to you. And that's a dangerous proposition if you're not on the right side of God. Let's pit the gods in your life up against me and see how they rate. Let's go head to head 
and see who comes out on top. Your gods against me. Now you can choose, and many have done just that and suffer the consequence of going head to head with God. Or alternatively, as intended by God, you can listen to him and learn from the mistakes of others, and in particular this morning, the mistakes of Pharaoh. You know, they say that uh, a wise man learns from his mistakes, but an even wiser man learns from the mistakes of others. Let's learn from Pharaoh as he pits himself and his gods up against the Lord, the God of Israel, and see how he fares. You know, growing up, uh, you may have watched, or I watched, um, some of the heavyweight title fights of uh, the World Championship and uh, Muhammad Ali. And uh, I, like many others, would, uh, would think, well, I don't want to get into the ring against Muhammad Ali. You wouldn't last too long. Well, here today, Pharaoh gets into the ring with God and goes 10 rounds with God. And let's see how he fares. So first of all, before a title fight, there's normally a weigh-in. The, uh, the heavyweight champion of the world and the challenger will come and eyeball each other, face off, uh, almost nose to nose, and try and stare each other down. And this is what happens uh, in Pharaoh's story. There's, there's like a weigh-in, a preliminary, and it's recorded in Exodus chapter 7, verse 10 to 13. Let's read that together. So Mer- Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian musicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. So Aaron throws down his staff and it miraculously turns into a snake. And somehow the Egyptian magicians do the same thing by their secret arts, namely demonic power. And yet Aaron's staff or snake swallows up the magician's staffs. This is the way in, this is the preliminaries where God meets his challenger face to face and stares him down. But is Pharaoh going to back down? Will Pharaoh show God a little respect? No way, there's too much pride at stake. Pharaoh hardens his heart. Let the fight begin, bring it on. My God, Moses, against yours. And so the fight begins. Round one, the plague of blood. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 17 and 18. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. God begins the fight to show who is going to be crowned champion, who is the real God. And the first plague strikes at the Nile River, the life-giving waters upon which Egypt was 
and is completely dependent for life. And God changes the waters of the Nile into thick blood and renders them utterly useless for life. And so in round one, God shows himself to be superior to the goddess of the Nile. Egypt had a god of the Nile River and that, uh, the, that goddess name was Happy, the Nile goddess. Round one goes to God. Round two begins the plague of frogs in Exodus chapter 8, verse 1 to 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and into your bedroom and onto your bed. Can you imagine sleeping with frogs? Into the houses of your officials and on all your people and into your ovens. Can you imagine cooking with frogs in your oven and your kneading troughs? The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. Awful. In round two, God reveals his power over the amphibian and the reptilian world. Now it's important because the Egyptian people gave special reverence to animals that could live in two separate environments. And they, they did this because the Egyptians were eager to be able to live in the environment of the underworld after death. But God shows that these beasts, the frogs, and their representative god, Heket, have no special power whatsoever. And round two goes to God. The bell rings for round three and four, the plagues of gnats and flies. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 20 to 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials and your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarm of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people, and this sign will occur tomorrow. So Pharaoh continues to refuse to yield and submit to God, and the fight goes on. And so Pharaoh and Egypt suffer the third and fourth plagues at the, the hand of God, gnats and flies. And here God shows his power over the insect world. Again, the Egyptians revered insects in their culture because of their apparent ability to thrive in, in filth and even to bring life out of filth. And these powers were of special importance to the Egyptians because they sought to live through the corruption of death. But God shows that the powers of insects and their insect god Kepri belong to him. Once again, the Lord, the God of Israel, takes the points. 
Round five and six, the plagues and the boils on livestock. In Exodus 9, verse 1 to 4, the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Hebrew, says. Let my people go so they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses, donkeys and camels, and on your cattle, sheep and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in verse 8, Take handfuls of soot from a furnace and give Moses and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt and festering boils will break out on the people and animals throughout the land. The this fifth and the sixth plague especially affected livestock. And here again, it's a battle between the Lord, the God of Israel and the Egyptian gods. The great gods of Egypt were often symbolised by animals such as Apis, the bull god. But God shows that these gods are helpless before him as are their human masters. God wins again, but still there's no knockout punch. Pharaoh's corner won't throw in the towel. And the bell rings and Pharaoh comes out once again. Round 7 and 8, the plague of hail and locusts. In Exodus chapter 9, verses 13 to 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Hebrews says, Let my people go so that they may worship me, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. So you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. This is the purpose of God, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up, Pharaoh, for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against me and my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person, every and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. And then in Exodus 10, verse 3 and 5. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Hebrews, say, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little left, little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. 
Now, these seventh and eighth plagues primarily affect vegetation. And Egypt's wealth and culture rested upon their, their superabundance of grain, which the irrigated Nile Valley produced. And thus, one of Egypt's greatest gods was Isiris, who symbolised the plants that died each autumn and that rose to new life in spring. Osiris was the god of new life and vegetation. And Osiris' complexion was green, not because she was sick, but it was to reinforce this connection with vegetation. But even Osiris is found to be subject to the Lord God of Israel. What the hail didn't destroy, the locusts did. And in a forceful statement to Pharaoh, God underlines the purpose of the plagues. If destruction was God's purpose, he could have done that long ago. He could have stretched out his hand and wiped them off the face of the earth. But rather, using the Egyptian gods and Pharaoh himself as foils, God intends to reveal himself to the world. And the question for you and I today, just as the question was three and a half thousand years ago for Pharaoh, is this. Are we taking notice? Are we paying attention? Well, Pharaoh is, to a degree. Finally, Pharaoh admits that there's some other standard than his own to which he is accountable. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 27, Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, this time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is right and I and my people are in the wrong. But you know, giving over to intellectual assent doesn't guarantee surrender of the will. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 35, Pharaoh's heart was hard and he still would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Now isn't that just like so many throughout the ages who say they believe in God? They give intellectual assent to the existence of God, yet that intellectual assent makes no claim on their obedience and their allegiance. And the truth remains and is this, if you're listening today, an intellectual belief in the existence of God, in itself, by itself, will not and cannot save you from death. James wrote in the New Testament, in chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that there is one God? Well, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And that is Pharaoh's situation at the moment. He's starting to acknowledge God, but he's not bowing the knee. So the fight goes on into round nine, the plague of darkness. In Exodus chapter 10, 21 to 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that the darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. This ninth plague was an attack on the sun god himself, Egypt's highest god, Amun-Ra. 
And by showing his control over the sun, God demonstrates that no Egyptian idol, no Egyptian god could stand before him. Pharaoh's best punch is rendered useless, harmless. He's still standing, but only just. He's staggering on the ropes. Can Pharaoh hang on for one last round and go the distance with God Almighty? Can he stay on his feet? Or will God bring the challenger to his knees in the final round? And the bell rings for round 10, the knockout round, the championship round. Exodus 11, verse 4 to 7. So Moses says, This is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes this distinction between Egypt and Israel. The tenth and last plague attacks the very heart of Egyptian faith, which was life itself. The Egyptians were obsessed with keeping the good life of Egypt intact right into the next world. And you can see that to the extent which the pharaohs went um, with their detailed mummification process and entombment in in the pyramids. And though the gods who were, after all, but representations might fail. Still, if life and the life force continue, then the Egyptian faith could survive. But when God shows that even the continuation of life itself, as symbolised by the firstborn, is subject to him and under his control, then there's nothing left for Pharaoh but to admit defeat. And Pharaoh hits the canvas with a mighty thump. He's out cold. The challenge has been snuffed out. And in the end, Pharaoh comes up empty-handed. Pharaoh has no gods left to rescue him. The fight is over. The tenth plague was the knockout blow for Pharaoh and Egypt. But the reality, as you listen this morning, is that the tenth plague is the knockout blow for all of mankind, for you and for me, and even for the Israelites. No matter how many rounds you or I or anyone else tries to go with God, in the tenth and final round, God has a knockout punch for each and every one of us. And in the final round of life, God calls each and every one of us to account for each and every round of life where we've took up the fight against him. Each and every decision in our life to ignore God and his best for us, each and every choice to live our lives independent of God is called to account in the tenth and final round. And the judge's decision, as always, is final. No one is exempt from that judgment. For each of us at one point or another in our life have taken up the fight against God. Even the Israelites, 
And they continued to take up the fight, even as God took them out of Egypt into the promised land. How many times did they rebel on their journey? But as we cry out for mercy, our cries do not go unheard or unheeded, just like the Israelites who cried out from their oppression and slavery in Egypt. And out of his great mercy and love, God makes a way for the humble of heart to escape the knockout punch, the blow of death. For the Israelites in Egypt, it was trusting in God's command regarding the blood over the Passover lamb on their door frames. The Passover lamb would die in the place of the firstborn sons of Israel. And we read of this in Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 to 3. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go, shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit, it, permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. I wonder at this point in time if the welcome team could come and hand out the elements of, for communion. That tenth plague was significant not only because it prompted the Egyptians to let the Israelites go, but because it revealed the fundamental spiritual nature of salvation. The tenth plague reveals that we all need to be saved from death and eternal separation from God. And the special nature of the tenth plague is indicated by the fact that it was the only plague which the Israelites had to take action so they would be protected from it. The Passover is a recognition that the real enemy of Israel is not the Egyptians, but death itself. And the Passover lamb that was provided for the Israelites illuminates the need that we all have for a Passover lamb. For all of us have lived in opposition or rebellion to God at some point or other in our lives. All of us have donned the gloves against God at some point in our lives. And our Passover lamb was ultimately provided when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived on earth some 2,000 years ago and shed his blood when he died in our place. John the Baptist recognised this as Jesus came to the Jordan River to be baptised. John looked at Jesus and said to the crowd, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's who we need to look to today to take away our sin. The blood of the Passover lamb covered the, the door frames of the Israelites to save them from God's judgment of sin. And now the blood of Jesus Christ covers over our sin and saves us from God's judgment. And Jesus 
explain this truth to his disciples and for us today when that Passover was fulfilled at the Last Supper just before his crucifixion. At, the, at the, that Last Supper, Jesus openly referred the symbolism of the Passover to himself and what he would do for the world on the next day for you and I. In Luke chapter 22, verse 14 to 20, we read, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. That's what we're doing today. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. As we remember that sacrifice this morning, we're reminded by the story of the plagues in Egypt that no god or the little g gods that we make in our lives to do things our way and to live independently of God, they won't stand up against God Almighty. God Almighty has power over all those little gods that we might make in our life and ultimately in round 10 the final round of life we all have to give an account of him in round 10 god has the knockout punch for each one of us but in his mercy and out of his great love he's provided us a way to survive and that way was to die in our place to take the punishment for our sin for our rebellion in our lives when we've stood up to God and said, we know better, we'll do it our way. The blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all that sin and makes us holy once again in God's sight. Let's pray before we share the elements together. God, we just come before you and recognise in humility that no one can stand before you. No one can go ten, ten rounds with you. We couldn't even go one round with you if you chose because you could wipe us off the face of the earth. You alone are God. You alone are almighty and only you can save us. And God, we thank you that out of your great mercy and love you have chosen to do that. You have chosen to pass over our sin as you look at our lives covered with the blood of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, we just thank you that you died in our place to take the punishment for our sin. Thank you that you pass over our sin and declare us righteous or right standing again in the sight of the Lord God Almighty. And Jesus, we just take these elements now in thanks and humble adoration that you have provided a way out for us because none of us in our right mind would want to step into the ring and go one round 
let alone 10 rounds with the Lord God Almighty. So we eat and we drink in remembrance of you and give you thanks for saving each one of us who put our faith in you. Amen. Let's eat and drink together.